I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Ines Stepman. I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode, as you can tell from the title, is going to be focused entirely on our analysis of the FBI raid on President Trump's property, Mar-a-Lago, that unfolded just this week. I believe it actually was on Tuesday, or on Monday, I'm sorry, uh, the raid that happened on Monday. And uh, for for semantic purposes, uh, there may be some debate about whether it was a raid. We'll get into that, I'm sure. Um, But we do know that Donald Trump's personal property was searched. And we're going to break it down into four different segments. Ben will start by describing what we know, the details, what happened, and then we'll go into how unprecedented and dangerous what happened is. Josh will take and lead that discussion. We're then going to talk about what the response should be. I'll take that subject. And Inez will close us out with how this will impact the 2024 presidential race, which, believe it or not, is shaping up quickly and is is basically around the corner. So with that, Ben, I'll kick it over to you because I think for the average person, some of these details are are hard to keep track of if they blissfully are not in the media business. Um, If they're fortunate not to be in the media business, it's convoluted and complicated. So tell us what happened on Monday when the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago. So I'll try to hit some of the salient points here and reserve my editorializing for later, although I will say thank you to Josh late last night, uh, right after the raid, I wrote a column for Newsweek that he was kind enough to put up, which goes into some of my thinking on this issue, which I would describe as sort of crossing a Rubicon in some respects in terms of what I believe to be the weaponization and hyperpoliticization of the national security apparatus, as I've talked about ad nauseum on this program. But then on the other hand, just the logical next step in what that national security apparatus has been up to for six years, really, and counting. So with that uh, brief editorialization up top, a few of the salient points as we understand them at this juncture, in less than 24 hours as we're recording this after uh, the raid itself. So the search warrant was executed. Our understanding is purportedly over documents being held at Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. Reportedly, he was not at Mar-a-Lago at the time uh, this search warrant was executed. Uh, It's our understanding that there's concern that there may have been improper withholding of classified documents, uh, huge substantial numbers of which uh, are residing at Mar-a-Lago. And As I'm sure viewers and listeners will recall, there's been substantial litigation over these documents in the first place. So first, the January 6th committee itself sought any documents relating to the quote unquote insurrection uh, and therefore litigated against Trump uh, at several levels in order to try to obtain those documents, relevant documents to their uh, never ending investigation into January 6th and anything and everything around it. Uh, So there was litigation over those documents. And then also um, the National Archives Administration and Records Administration also sought to retrieve and obtain a number of documents held uh, at Mar-a-Lago. And by all accounts, President Trump, even though he litigated with respect to the January 6th committee, was cooperating with the National Archives Administration. 
there's been some reporting out there to suggest that even those sensitive or classified documents that were held there, he had actually declassified prior to leaving office. But in any event, the reporting, at least the yeah, the headline is that there may be some withholding of classified or sensitive documents here. It is unprecedented for a president's former president's house to have been raided, a search warrant to be executed around these kinds of documents. Typically, these documents, when there is uh, some sort of contention over them, it is dealt with through normal administrative channels, not with the FBI raiding the property of the former president. Uh, let's also note the significance of potentially withholding classified documents, leaving aside what we could go into, you know, the double standards here around people who have taken classified documents, uh, people who've been in office, left office and taken those documents and how it's been litigated in the past, which Josh can probably speak to. Mark Elias, Democrat super lawyer, was giddy on Twitter last night talking about the fact that if you look at the relevant statutes here around taking these classified documents in an unlawful manner, uh, that this could lead to disqualification for a federal officer, of course, pointing towards Trump being disqualified in 2024, which Democrats have tried to use the insurrection argument to disqualify members of the House running in this cycle. And there had been uh, rumblings about potentially using that against Trump in 2024. Well, this is another potential charge that could be leveled against Trump in 2024 to try and derail that run. Uh, a couple other points worth noting. Uh, Trump reported, others have reported as well, that uh, FBI agents actually opened up a private safe uh, in executing this warrant. Uh, Andrew McCarthy and others have made the case speculating, informed speculation, if we want to call it that, that this is essentially a fishing expedition. This has nothing to do with records pertaining to uh, Trump's presidency that may have been sensitive, but rather this is January 6th committee related. And of course, the January 6th committee has already touched on some of the documents here. Also, a couple other salient points worth noting. This was executed around 10 days out from the 90-day period prior to an election where, by practice at least, FBI and DOJ officials are not supposed to engage in any sort of anything to be perceived as election interference. So this is just outside you know, something of a statute of limitations here. Uh, and last but not least, we've been hearing these details now about the judge, reportedly Judge Reinhardt, a magistrate judge, uh, who signed off on the search warrant. Apparently, he contributed to Jeb Bush in 2015. He contributed to Barack Obama in 2008. And for what it's worth, because this is the swamp, of course, uh, he also apparently represented a number of Jeffrey Epstein's employees. Uh, so those are some of the salient facts related to this. We can go into on the merits, you know, the legitimacy or illegitimacy of this. I'll just make the point up top that I would argue, again, on the one hand, this is a Rubicon crossing moment for a president's FBI slash DOJ to be investigating his predecessor as a private citizen. We've seen before the use of these seemingly trivial acts, like a phone call with a foreign leader, uh, or of course, the concoction of Russiagate itself with the FBI and DOJ and national security apparatus concocting a case and using it as a pretext to justify a never-ending jihad against Trump, personifying and representing tens of millions of Americans, as I've argued before. To me, this is just obviously the precursor for an indictment that's coming. I'm not sure when it's going to come. If the idea is to try to indict him before he announces he's running in 2024 or after, who knows all the different political angles associated with this. But I think if you had any doubts about what Merrick Garland's DOJ and really Joe Biden's DOJ was planning on doing with Donald Trump, there's about 100% probability now that Donald Trump will be indicted 
And this sets up, I think this is the ultimate weaponization of our institutions. It's never been more brazen and plain for Americans to see what's going on. Uh, but I'm curious what the group thinks about it. And I'm sure we'll jump into all these different threads during this episode. It was a really helpful breakdown, Ben, and uh, we'll go around the horn quickly here, be disciplined to keep it into each segment because everything seems to flow into each other. But my first uh, quick reaction is on the facts um, as we lay the groundwork, the factual groundwork here is actually what Andy McCarthy wrote, um, which is we know A, that they would have had to have probable cause a crime was committed, and then that the evidence of that crime would probably be in Mar-a-Lago. So if the crime is a violation of the Presidential Records um, Act and the laws surrounding presidential records, then even as a source told Politico this morning, a legal expert, as a legal analyst on CNN said this morning, this is precedent-breaking in a very negative way um, in a norm-breaking partisan direction that will have dangerous ramifications for the future. So that's like just another layer of factual groundwork in order to obtain this warrant. Um, they had to have two of those points met. The judge had to agree to it. Um, and then that's that's their predicate, basically. And our legal experts, uh, Josh and Inez, and not Ben, as I once mistakenly believed, uh, we'll, we'll dive into all of this, but I'll just kick it over to the two of you. So it appears that the magistrate judge who signed off on this, we think it is Bruce Reinhardt, who is a Southern District of Florida-based magistrate judge. Raheem Kassam was among the first to report this at National Pulse. And, you know, this is a magistrate judge who has all sorts of ties to Jeffrey Epstein. He is does not particularly appear to be a, a, a figure in particularly high repute here. Look, I guess sticking to the facts here, because we're going to be able to break this down in our subsequent segments, my read on what happened last night is a very, very, very dark night in the history of this country. It really, really is. This did not have to happen. I mean, this was an intimidation campaign. It was an act of public humiliation. It was an act of petty, partisan, vindictive bloodlust, uh, pursuing power qua power, pursuing power, that is, in a public display of power and force to humiliate one's political enemies simply for that end unto itself. This did not have to happen. He was apparently cooperating with respect to the with, with the records dispute, whatever it was, from him to the National Archives. Any president can declassify any documents that he wants to. We have not seen the warrant yet as of this recording, so we, we do not know what particular issue even as pertained to classification there was. They could have picked up the phone and called him at, at a maximum. They could have issued a subpoena. They did not need to do a pre-dawn raid of this nature. It is egregious, egregious stuff. It feeds all of the worst narratives that we on the right have been talking on this podcast for a year and a half now. Literally, as, as recently as last week's show, we talked about how the, how the national security state, the NSA, FBI, CIA, is the tip of the spear for the rot that is the deep state and the administrative state, more generally speaking. This is only going to accelerate calls on our side to defund the FBI and things like that. And I think those calls at this point are difficult, perhaps impossible to avoid. But you know, we're running out of time in this segment, so I wanted Ness to get some words in here, but uh, it's a very, very, very dark night for the for the country. Look, I'll, I'll avoid, I know we're, we're moving to the unprecedented and dangerous nature of this in a moment, so I'll, I'll avoid that subject for now and just say, I obviously agree with Ben that this is crossing the Rubicon. Um, just one note on the facts. I mean, this is very obviously protectual, right? There, there is There is no way there's no way they're going to actually even be able, I don't think they're going to be able to indict him or or prosecute him for this actual violation. All Trump has to say in this case is, 
I declassified these documents before I left the, the Oval Office. Like he can just wave his hands around. The, the, the um, power to classify or declassify documents um, from the federal government, from the executive branch runs through the president. So th this, this is obviously, I mean, bury a level, show me the man, I'll show you the crimes kind of stuff. It's obviously protectual. I honestly, as cynical and pessimistic as I am, um, about the, the direction of this country. I'm shocked that it was this protectual. If, if that reporting is true, that, that in fact, this warrant and breaking of 250 years, nearly 250 years of tradition of not prosecuting and not going after uh, political opponents, domestic political opponents in this country was broken on a protectual uh, uh, cause as flimsy as this, this record, record keeping act, um, that in itself is just a, a blatant show of, of power. And it shows that the people wielding that power have, they're wielding it the way that a toddler would wield a, a flamethrower. They have no regard for the Republic destroying consequences of the power that they're wielding. On that note, Josh, take us into the next topic here about the, the truly unprecedented nature of what we're seeing this week. So, I mean, to state the obvious, to get the obvious out of the way from the top here, Nothing like this has happened. I, I mean, I don't know how else to say it. I mean, this is not the kind of thing that has ever happened in this country where you see a former president, a former commander in chief, the very person who takes that famous article to oath to see their personal home uh, raided in this fashion. Again, we, I guess we can quibble whether the FBI internal manual refers to what happened or the execution of a search warrant as a raid. But this looks to, I think, the median lay observer a hell of a these images are viscerally shocking. I mean, for anyone who is kind of, you know, driven by the Mar-a-Lago estate in Palm Beach or, or, or been there to see these images of these sirens and, and, and everything there, it, this is just not the kind of thing that, that happens in the United States of America. I mean, this is the kind of thing that literally does happen all the time, you know, in tin pot dictatorships and third world banana republics, Venezuela. Nicaragua, Iran, Sub-Saharan Africa, Sri Lanka, Ethiopia, whatever. I, it, the point is it does not happen here. It just doesn't because America has always had an idea of the rule of law, of equal justice under law. I believe, to my knowledge, those words are still etched in the uh, above the edifice that is the United States Supreme Court. I do not believe that those words have been taken off that building, at least as of yet. But Equal justice under law to the extent that it that it existed as recently as five, 10 years ago. I think a lot of us who are deeply red pilled, bordering on black pilled as far as the notion of, of the rule of law in this country are concerned. This is this is about as heavy a, a data point, an anecdotal data point as we have seen thus far about the degradation of the purported neutrality of the rule of law in this country. And it just, you know, Ben has written so prolifically about the Russiagate collusion hoax, obviously the FBI lying to get the FISA warrant on Carter Page. But even over the past year and a half or so, I mean, look what happened to as recently, you know, John Eastman, New Mexico, the, the, the feds came in with a warrant that John described in Tucker Carlson's show was just basically being a total general warrant, the very kind of warrant that is that the British would use against the colonists in the 1760s. We have a Fourth Amendment literally to prophylactically preclude the issuance of precisely those types of warrants. Look at what happened to Peter Navarro, who's literally in chains. I mean, this was the Trump administration's, you know, top trade advisor. James O'Keefe, he's not technically, um, you know, didn't work in the administration. The head of Project Veritas, obviously, they had a pre-dawn raid on him last fall, battering ram in handcuffs literally on the floor of his own house. And now the, the commander in chief, the former commander in chief, the guy who had the nuclear football, 
I, I, I just don't have words to describe this kind of thing. And again, this simply, this did not have to happen. This really, truly did not have to happen. I mean, even assuming a a purported violation of, of the Presidential Records Act, which again, we we have no idea. I mean, you know, this judge, Judge Reinhardt, apparently the Jeffrey Epstein connected judge, seems to have think there was probable cause for whatever that's that's worth. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm gonna put my lawyer hat on, I think back to my criminal procedure course in law school, I should tell you, it's probably not worth much. Judges sign off on these sorts of warrants all the time. I mean, you technically need probable cause. That standard has been liberally, I think, you know, exaggerate far beyond what perhaps the people who first devised that standard first intended it to be here. But, you know, you know, I mean, we're going to talk on the rest of this podcast about how we possibly come back from this. I'm not sure we can. I, I mean, they, I really do think it is a true crossing of the Rubicon to use this phrase that we have now been using. And, and that is just the way that I've been trying to digest this information is there is probably no recovering that kind of, you know, that paragon of a neutral lady justice blind to all kind of, we really are in a two-tiered system of justice. And we have we have sunk into a new low. So, um, you know, I'm happy to kind of toss it out to you guys. But I mean, just to underscore the point here, I mean, this did not have to happen. They could have picked up the phone and called him. They could have issued a subpoena at worst. This is a public humiliation and display of power and force simply for the sake of displaying power and force. And it is truly, truly unequivocally unprecedented. Um, Hey, go ahead, Inez. Um, I'll, I'll just jump in here to dispatch briefly the argument that, you know, no one is above the law. And, and if the president breaks the law or a former president breaks the law, um, you know, that's the argument we're seeing, not just from the left, but from the usual suspects on sort of the establishment. Right. Um, and, and it wholly avoids the point. Um, nobody, I don't think any single one of us would say uh, that if, if, you know, a former president waltzes down Fifth Avenue, to use the the example from from the campaign, um, waltzes on down Fifth Avenue and shoots somebody. That that wouldn't be prosecuted or ought not to be prosecuted uh, by the justice system. It's merely to say that the implication that Josh just said about us having a two tier justice system, that the the apparatus of the U.S. justice system uh, determines prosecutions based on whether your politics are in favor or out of favor with the regime. This implication is so republic destroying, so disastrous um, that that uh, we should use extreme caution and only prosecute, break this tradition of never doing this for almost 250 years. We should do that only in in the cases where the, the there's really clear evidence of a very serious crime, right? And the the records you know records act ain't it? Um, and and so. That that is is the argument that this is such an incredible breaching step that so clearly screams political prosecution, not just to Trump, but to the, the millions of Americans who are watching this and thinking, and this was always Trump's most powerful argument, you know, they're going after Trump, but they hate me. Especially with, with the fact that we're hiring 87,000 new IRS agents to audit essentially the middle class of America, because you don't need that many agents to audit the, the small number of billionaires. Um, you know, th that, that is the implication. It's not that pres former presidents are, are given, granted immunity forever, and they just get to freely break the law after they leave office. It's simply that the bar for prosecution should and has been extremely high 
because we'd rather have a situation in which a former president, you know, does some low level shady stuff, let's say with documents or, or something else, um, then, then give the implication, in this case, the right implication, the correct implication, that we, we are prosecuting our political opponents in this country. That, that's the, the rejoinder. That's why that, that no one is above the law thing to me seems to be completely missing the point. With that, I'll, I'll throw that back out. Just on the uh, above the law aspect of this, I mean, no president has been, been treated so far below the law as Donald Trump, subjected to every single possible abuse by these agencies in a bid to take him down from the campaign onward. And the most investigative, investigated, probed person probably in American history has still not been shown to have done anything wrong ever in these instances. It's actually remarkable to think about how squeaky clean he must be when you have every single power under the sun being wielded to try and frame him, concoct these plots and destroy the guy. It's actually remarkable to witness this in real time. And that's even before we get to the subversion and the sabotage, the insubordination of the people working under him. You know, this comes amid, you know, these revelations about how his generals did not do the commander in chief's bidding, did not execute the policies that he laid forth. Itself a massive norm breaking, institution breaking act. But basically, and, and I've argued this in many different ways and forums, essentially, there is no institution too sacred, no norm too steeped in history and precedent that they won't destroy in trying to destroy what they consider an existential threat to their power, a representation of tens of millions of people who they loathe, who they hold in contempt, uh, and whose agenda is antithetical to the ruling class's agenda. And that's what this has really always been about, in my view. Um, just a couple other points. It's hilarious to watch the spinning that we see going on now about how Everyone under the sun within FBI and DOJ had to look at this warrant, approve of it and sign off on it, as if that's supposed to give us some comfort that this is wholly legitimate and above board. When look at what we've just seen, I and mean, we talked about this last week, Chuck Grassley saying essentially that the FBI and DOJ were protecting Hunter Biden, while at the same time going after Grassley and Ron Johnson for probing Hunter Biden. Then we have the Jim Jordan revelations about cooking the books on the purported threat of domestic violent extremism in this country, driven, of course, by MAGA conservatives. And then we have the FBI director last week apparently skipping out, cutting short a Senate oversight hearing to go off on a jaunt to the Adirondacks. I believe this was on a Thursday. That is the contempt and the belief that they are so far above reproach and untouchable that our betters in the deep state feel not only for the elected representatives who have shown themselves to be weak and to talk a big game and then do nothing about it, but for the American people. They believe they are way above oversight. In fact, one of the most hilarious parts of the testimony was Dick Durbin talking about how he was so appreciative that the FBI director had come in front of that oversight uh, testimony, that oversight hearing three times in the last two years. Oh, thank God. He, he came out and spoke to senators three times in two years. That's oversight in Washington, D.C. It's just beyond outrageous. It's beyond contempt. It goes way beyond what has to happen, goes way beyond merely impeaching Christopher Wray or Merrick Garland. It goes to the core of the institutions themselves. 
Yeah, and and just quickly, what I can add to that, um, we we didn't mention Hillary Clinton or other instances of people who had classified information um, that was brought outside of uh, the White House or its proper location. Obviously, a hundred classified emails were found on Clinton's private server. Um, some of those were marked highly classified. And no, she was not the president of the United States. And yes, the FBI did investigate her, although it was the Obama Department of Justice that pursued that investigation. But um, I think it's important to look back and, and realize that, well, yes, I, I don't doubt for one second that Donald Trump may have improperly removed some records from the White House. That seems entirely plausible to me. The question of whether, as Josh mentioned, this early morning raid on Mar-a-Lago has been applied proportionately in any other case. And I'd, I have not I've yet to see a, simul, a single scrap of evidence that that's the case, uh, period. So if there are no final thoughts, I think we can, uh, well, just on this real, topic- Just yeah, real quick, I, I just want to really quickly compliment what you said, Emily, because I was going to bring it up as well. So with respect to the Hillary Clinton, like the email server, the 33,000 emails, whatever it is, Trump specifically said in like November 2016 or December, right after he was elected in 2016, that he would not pursue charges against Hillary Clinton because he, he didn't want to set the precedent of prosecuting a, you know, a political foe, someone who just been defeated. He publicly literally said that. So, you know, what, uh, apparently the left does not have the same charity that he once had. That is a fantastic point, and it's a perfect segue into our next topic, which is what should the response be? And we're not merely talking here about what the response should be from Republicans, because in an ideal world, this question um, is one that there can be consensus beyond merely the Republican Party, um, and that Democrats who are actually actually concerned with norms and precedents in this country and returning to a place of normalcy, um, whatever that means, it's not what we're in right now, we know that much. Um, it, people can sort of come to consensus on this. And I, I, I do think it's interesting, the quotes that I mentioned from Politico and CNN, where you had legal experts saying that this is dangerous, if it is just about presidential records, it's dangerous, are interesting ones. And I think one's interesting examples that show there is a coalition and there is a consensus to be built across, um, if not the aisle in Washington, DC, the aisle in the country more broadly and the aisle in sort of the discourse more broadly. So I just wanna lay that out there first and, and quickly say, um, Josh's point is, is so interesting about the way Donald Trump approached Hillary Clinton, because that was the product of a lot of pressure. And whether he would have done it without the pressure is an open question. A lot of pressure from people who were terrified that Donald Trump would be um, this massively consequential breaker of norms sort of across the board, um, even though the left has been breaking norm after norm after norm for years and years and years. And so Donald Trump responded by saying he would not. Uh, the, there was basically an appetite in the Republican Party and, of course, in the country more broadly, according to sort of Trump's reading of the situation, to say that he would not pursue further justice um, or, or further investigations into Hillary Clinton. That is really fascinating now as uh, there's a this open question about what to do in the aftermath of the FBI raid. And you you all have more expertise on, on this than I do. I'm sort of in the political myopia and, and maybe a little cultural too. So I'm curious as to what all of you think. Um, Republicans may be retaking both chambers of Congress going forward in the fall. 
um, they may then have the presidency in 2024. This is an open question in the discourse where there is a coalition to be built. Um, what can Republicans do and what can America do at this point to restore some of our necessarily neutral institutions to a much more sort of plausible uh, rendering of neutrality and more specifically what can be done about what happened at Mar-a-Lago this week? I'll, I'll kick off with a, a few high level thoughts here. Uh, I, I don't think that the institutions as currently constituted can be saved. Uh, I think that the toothpaste is out of the bottle. The institutions are only as credible and legitimate as the people who serve in them. And the highest ranks of these agencies have shown themselves repeatedly to be vengeful, hyper-politicized, weaponized, corrupted. So you would need a full house cleaning of the top floors within these organizations and then beyond as well. Uh, and we know that, of course, all manner of corruption from Russiagate straight on through has involved many people below the top ranks. So personnel is policy. You can have the best, the most pristine laws and the greatest, most storied institutions on the books. And it doesn't mean a thing if the people in them don't hold up, uphold those standards. And when they break those standards, they aren't prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And to me, and I tweeted this today, you know, in, in many respects, this, this all goes back to the fact there was no justice for Russiagate whatsoever, which was one of the reasons I was out there banging in the drum on that, essentially from the start. If there's no justice accountability for individuals who engage in you know, perpetrating a fraud on the FISA court, uh, concocting these schemes to try to make it seem that there's some nefarious, uh, treasonous collusion with a foreign power, etc. If people don't pay a price for that entire massive effort, and of course, we're talking about dozens and dozens of people here up to probably the last president of the United States before Trump, then you guarantee far worse. And I think we're seeing right now that guarantee paying out in real time. Uh, one other point I think it's worth making is that they would not be acting as they are if they thought they would pay a price under a Republican House and Senate. And so I think the behavior, the misconduct that we're seeing right now is very telling. Yes, there's an aspect of we have to wrap up these efforts as soon as possible prior to the midterms to extract our pound of flesh and leading up to 2024, of course. But they wouldn't be acting this way if they thought they would pay, if there would be an equal and opposite reaction from their on paper a political opponent. So, you know, what do you do ultimately? I haven't done the full thought exercise of, you know, you shut down these agencies, replace them with new ones, and then who staffs them and what is their mandate? Etc. How could you ensure that such corruption wouldn't manifest itself again? But I think a couple of things that have to be said are that every bad actor involved with the hyper-politicization and weaponization of these agencies has to be not only fired, but prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Number two, the penalties in any reformed institutions need to be incredibly severe for this kind of conduct, such that almost no one in their right, right mind who would think to abuse their powers would ever even consider taking such a job. Of course, Republicans can use their oversight powers to expose the corruption, even though they'll get stonewalled at every single turn, uh, as happened, by the way, under Trump. Trump himself was stonewalled by these agencies who acted as if they were above him. Uh, and then, of course, there's the power of the purse. And those powers have to be wielded bigly under a Republican House and or Senate. Um, I guess I'll jump in here. Uh, I, I don't think that's enough or will work the way 
that Ben laid it out, or, or maybe maybe not Ben specifically, actually, but uh, you know, there is a response for essentially tit for tat, right? If if we don't um, prosecute, then this will continue. And I, I agree that the the actors involved will need to be prosecuted, but there's a larger problem here. Um, it wouldn't work for us because those exactly because those institutions are so uh, the the political um, corruption in those institutions is so total and so common, frankly, because it's 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 very much not in some cases it's the cackling guy doing something wrong. In more in more cases, it's just there's simply you know there's such a uniform hatred of Trump and the ideas that he he stands for, and and let's not kid ourselves, it would be the same for any serious conservative, um, that, that it is impossible for these agencies to maintain their, their objectivity and their jobs necessarily require judgment, right? They, they require the judgment to make a decision about whether or not to, to follow up on a case, whether to bring, bring charges and so on and so forth. I just don't think it would work for us. They're not just uh, not worried about the Republican House and Senate because Republicans are pathetic, although that is true. They're not worried about it because they know those agencies would never prosecute themselves. They know that the people working in there are not going to throw the book at the people who did this. And they know that every action of a Republican administration will be thoroughly resisted, which we saw for four years under Trump by unelected people underneath him, whether that's by diverting various policies, whether it's by pushing back or, or just letting things die in the bureaucracy. Um, that that I think the problem is sort of broader and deeper um, than than retaliatory action is actually going to solve, and the only way to do this is to to do in mass firing, right? It, the only way to do this is to and, and to do that as I've said many times we have to change the law generally for the civil service we have to be able to do in mass firing and we have to allow an incoming administration to actually staff itself with people who who agree with the the general direction of the policy. Um, of the president or who are willing to do their jobs. And, and we need to empower the elected officials to be able to fire people if they do not do their jobs short of, and certainly to be able to fire them if they leak information to the press, if they conduct their jobs in a politicized way, all of these things you can kind of go up the line in terms of how serious these crimes are. But underlying it is, is the inability to fire these people for not doing their jobs when they, they execute their own politics instead of the politics of the elected officials. And that's that's what I think ultimately has to be the solution here beyond hearings, beyond prosecution, excuse me, beyond hearings, beyond prosecution. That's ultimately the problem here is that, that these, these folks, they rightly don't fear any consequences because they know that the institutions that are in charge of meeting out those consequences will prevent elected officials, even serious ones, which the Republican Party has vanishingly few of, but even serious ones from actually carrying out those kinds of consequences. That's why they feel secure. I okay. like the use of the term oh. meeting out. Um, it's underused, uh, just adding some levity to this very uh, anti-levity discussion. Uh, Inez, I think we're turning it right back to you. Josh, did you have final thoughts on that segment before Inez jumps in? Um, I, I actually didn't have time to comment at all on this segment, but I could, but I, guess I, I, I could save it oh. till final. I could save, oh, it till, I, I could, I could save it till final thoughts if we want to. Um, but, I'm doing uh, a bang up job as host, just making jokes and losing track of time. Yeah, no, look, the short answer is um, I, I agree with heavy use of Schedule F. We have not one, but two pieces of Newsweek this week making that precise argument, one from Jonathan Tobin, one from my good buddy, Jonathan Bronitsky, would encourage you guys to go ahead and check it out. So Schedule F, the whole damn thing on day one, the Axios long form article that we discussed recently on this podcast. 
I think laid out those behind the scene efforts quite nicely. I also agree with Ben. Uh, you know, there's the old Angelo Codavella, the late great Angelo Codavella made the argument to kind of abolish the CIA, NSA, the FBI, the whole thing, build it from scratch. But I do have to say that I respectfully disagree with Inez um, when it comes to tit for tat, mutually assured destruction. Um, you know, my buddy Kyle Cash, you've had a tweet earlier today. Kyle said, quote, the raid on Mar-a-Lago is the natural result of a decades long power asymmetry between Democrats and Republicans. Democrats wield power to make their political adversaries' lives worse, like the Obama IRS targeting conservative orgs. With full knowledge, Republicans will not do the same. And that simply has to be true. I mean, tit for tat, mutually assured destruction, the only way out is through. Literally, the only way out is through, unless you actually want to do the whole Grover Norquist pre-Woodrow Wilson, you know, shrimp the government to drown in a bathtub. I mean, look, I mean, that's like, that's like, a, that's like a nice, like, you know, slogan for like the right liberal, you know, I pencil dork fest seminars. It's totally divorced from reality in the real world. And I really do think that the imperative called by this late hour is to play tit for tat within the confines of law. And yes, that does mean weaponizing our side's AGs, our side's prosecutors to reward friends and punish enemies within the confines of the rule of law. So I'll, I'll follow up on that in, in final thoughts as to what that actually means in practice here. But yeah, the reason that they can do this and they, and they are going to get away with them unless we push back is because our side simply does not engage in anything remotely resembling the same sort of behavior. But we'll come back to that. I'm anticipating a hot debate between uh, maybe all of us, uh, but certainly Josh and Inez in the final thoughts segment. But before we return uh, there, we have one more segment left for uh, from Inez who, who promises to have a short setup to compensate for her earlier uh, longevity. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. Um, moving to the consequences for 20 Loquaciousness, that's, yeah. a, that's a euphemism. <laughs> um, no, moving to the consequences for 2024, obviously this has major consequences uh, for a potential primary between Ron DeSantis and Trump. Um, I, I think for a lot of people, this this has just given them the, the overwhelming desire to make sure that Trump is the nominee uh, in, in 2024. Although I think because this took place in Florida, um, it, it, all eyes will be on Ron DeSantis to see what, what he does. And by the way, this is why this kind of situation is so, so, so dangerous. What happens if Ron DeSantis, for example, tries to, uh, or decides to station um, state officers around Mar-a-Lago and federal federal officers try to execute another warrant, right? That's the level of dangerousness. You could have state and federal officers pointing guns at each other. That is the level of dangerousness that, that this raid has opened. Um, but I think more important, the consequences for the election will be everything we've set up till now, that the institutional trust wholly broken, uh, a chain of, of abuses uh, that, that Ben referred to, starting, I think, actually with Lois Lerner back in the Tea Party era, prosecuting, selectively um, auditing Tea Party groups and using the, uh, the IRS, politicizing the uh, actions of the IRS, right? But a long chain of abuses running through Russiagate um, and, and the FBI recently classifying parents as domestic terrorists, so on and so on and so on. Um, I, I think institutional trust already extremely low is going to be utterly broken. And, and that is going to affect our politics uh, immensely in 2024. But with that, I'll, I'll, pick, I'll kick it back out. Well, well, let me just say, yeah, I date back to Russiagate, sort of the start of this. It's, it's not really there. I mean, we can also go back to the church committee. There's been misdeeds and abuses of the security state since uh, inception. However, what I do think has probably changed is, first of all, the knowledge of the extent of the corruption. 
uh, and then the lengths to which they're willing to go. Maybe not. Maybe that's naive. Maybe it's always been this way. And now we just see it in an ever more brazen and frankly, desperate sort of fashion. Uh, but, you know, clearly the notion of what flies as standard and not norm breaking here has completely gone out the window when you see the assault on pretty much every part of the Bill of Rights on a daily basis. And you know, to, to that end, I mean, I think it's worth noting one of the, my immediate thoughts last night as this story was unfolding was the regime through its, and I, I go through this every single time, but National Strategy for Countering Domestic Terrorism, read that document if you wanna see kind of the roadmap here. What it says is, anti-authority or anti-government extremists, so-called, present the most lethal threat along with you know, bigots, essentially, present the most lethal threat to the homeland. And so consequently, that strategy for countering domestic terrorism is largely focused on those elements. And they talk about the fact that restoring faith in our institutions, amazingly, uh, is one of the mandates, essentially, of the whole of government plus its private sector auxiliaries. The backlash against what we're seeing now, I think, is something that even if it's something they don't want to provoke, the regime will use any sort of dissent, uh, any sort of anger and outrage over this as a pretext to then further attack up to tens of millions of Americans and use this to say, look, you are against us, the regime, which qualifies as a threat to democracy. We defend democracy. Therefore, we're going to categorize and cast and classify even broader swaths of the population as homeland security threats. So I just see this spiraling in ever more disastrous and disturbing directions for Americans, frankly, of all political stripes. And what the fallout is in 2024 is beyond me. There's so many different ways that people are looking at this. Well, you know, this is guaranteeing that Trump is going to run, like it's daring him to run and to run even if he's indicted. Uh, and that basically Democrats think, well, you know, then we'll have the strongest chance to defeat him. On the other hand, the fact that he is the sole focus of the left would sort of indicate that they're deathly afraid of him running again and they want to do everything they can to disqualify him and make it impossible for him to run. So I can't I can't necessarily adjudicate, you know, who has the best argument and does this energize you know, millions of Americans and even apolitical or independent ones further to vote against the regime. If 2024 vote is seen as a vote against the regime, which I think it ought to be seen as. Uh, but I do think it's just worth noting up front that they've classified dissenters against them as the preeminent threat to the homeland, and they are creating ever more dissenters against them right now. So I, I read an article from the non-opinion, the news reporting side of Newsweek, that apparently in like the overnight, the 12 hours, whatever, after this raid went public, Trump's uh, on some external third party political betting market, whose name is escaping me, I think it's called Smarket. Trump's percentage being the next president dropped by like 1.3% and Ron DeSantis is shot up. I, I'm not sure that's right, to be honest with you. Um, I say that as someone who is on record as preferring Ron DeSantis as our next president of the United States, as much as I would love to keep him here as my governor in Florida. But this does seem to, to militate in favor of Donald Trump. I mean, like, you know, I saw a lot of people last night tweeting something to the effect of, you know, Trump just secured the 2024 nomination. That was basically kind of my take as well, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, playing the victim card, playing the role of martyrdom is something that suits Trump very well. I think he very much gravitates towards that posture. And in this case, you know, it happens to be true. I mean, like he literally is the victim. He is the victim of an unprecedented, unjustified, retributive, vindictive act of partisan bloodlust. I mean, that is basically what we just saw happen earlier this week here. 
So I, I happen to think this will help Republican drive Republican voter turnout in the 2022 midterms. And, you know, we'll see how it, how it ultimately plays out in 2024. One thing I will say is uh, one of my first thoughts was, you know, wow, this happened right here in Florida. There's, the media has, has tried so hard to make Trump versus DeSantis a thing. There's all these long form articles like the former bromance. Turn, you know, from my perspective, it's it's 99 percent of it is total nonsense. But, you know, I, I do think that there that there is an opportunity for Ron DeSantis to to do something. The problem is I'm not sure what that something is. Um, you know, this this is a federal law enforcement operation. You know, he there's just not really a whole lot really that the state government can actually do at a bare minimum. His tweet was very fiery. He used capital T, the capital R regime to refer to what the Biden administration did to Trump. It was pretty awesome, if I can say that. And I was happy to see that. But, um, you know, I, I do think that this helps Trump for 2024. That's for sure. Yeah, I think there's a not insignificant chance that Donald Trump announces he's running for president within the next couple of months and completely consolidates the race early. Um, I, I think that's probably not a bad strategy, honestly, because first of all, it can preclude further action, uh, investigative action, or it can, I guess, maybe even maybe preclude isn't the right word so much as disincentivize uh, further investigative action or politicization in the in the near term. Um, because he would be a declared candidate. I don't know if that's the strongest incentive to announce early so much as making the race look more like the Democratic primary in 2016, where Hillary Clinton was far and away the presumed front runner. Um, and because everybody kind of knew that, the donors knew where their money was going. Um, the other candidates knew that the donors' money was going in one direction, the media attention was going in one direction, the name direction, the name uh, recognition was going in one direction. And you had a couple of candidates uh, run against her, but it was pretty clear what was ultimately going to happen, even if Bernie gave her a little run for her money. So I, I kind of expect to see a version of that. And I think this may induce an early Trump announcement. I would have bet on probably a September announcement. Um, and that still probably seems to be, uh, I mean, to me, that still seems like a safe bet. If anything, this makes it even safer. Um, so whether or not in a, in a general election, this is helpful for Republicans. I'm skeptical. I think um, the, the sort of politicization of the FBI and the DOJ, as important as it is, is really hard for uh, you know, voters to follow. And it makes it them feel like there's just so much wrong on both sides that you sort of throw your hands up in the air and vote on other things. Um, that's not to say it won't be energizing for the Republican base. I think that's probably true, but it's just you know, obviously very hard right now to say how it shakes out. Um, politically, other than the fact that I think it really, uh, it, it might be one of those tipping point factors into getting an early announcement for Trump. So with that, uh, I'm actually really looking forward to final thoughts today. Not that I, I'm not always looking forward to, to final thoughts, but um, maybe we can get some loggerheads going and, and maybe Ben and I can do a sort of fight club bet on uh, who'll, who'll win it out and what I'm expecting to be a, a just a full slam down WWE. Okay, I'll stop, I'll stop. <laughs> Josh and Inez have at it. Josh, Josh, go ahead and go first because you, you only got like a, a perfunctory 30 seconds there at the end, so. I look. I, I think Emily is, is is playing up the audience here. I'm not sure, I don't want, I, I, at the risk of overselling the theater that is to come. <laughs> No, look, I mean, this is not really anything different than what I and, you know, many others 
I have been saying for a while now. I mean, this is to me, this is kind of the definition of knowing what time it is. I mean, honestly, I think a lot of us in this podcast should feel quite prescient. It was literally last week's episode that we were talking about how the national security state, the FBI, the CIA, and so forth, is the very tip of the spear of the deep state rot that has to get you know outed in the next Republican administration via Schedule F. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, as as dark a night as Monday evening was, as we all saw this unprecedented pre-dawn raid take place, you know, I I, I do think that it is a that it was a, a good evening. A silver lining was that it was a good evening, I think, for the idea of trying to know what time it is. And, you know, that that's a late motif of this podcast. It kind of comes up each and each week. But I, I, I do think that one element of knowing what time it is, is at least from my perspective, is recognizing that the pendulum at this point is so, 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 so far off balance. And, you know, even if we would not necessarily derive at certain kind of uh, reward friends, punish enemies within the confines of the rule of law style conclusions from a first principles analysis of kind of uh, the grandeur of Greek and Roman political philosophy, I do think that as a pure kind of practical, pragmatic, prudential matter, some sort of escalatory measures on our side to try to get a tit for tat status quo to just rebalance the pendulum a little bit to try to prophylactically preclude the disintegration of the republic is called for. So, you know, what that's going to mean in practice is to kind of use the tax code and indeed to kind of use prosecutorial offices to go after those who are, who are promoting evil, who are doing destructive harm to this country. It's kind of disproportionately focused prosecutorial resources, you know, on, on, on the transgender mafia, the rainbow jihad, the drag queen story hours, things that things of that nature there. But look, I mean, they have clearly seen that I think our side is not going to put up, is not going to engage in any of the sort of kind of, you know, get your hands dirty, roll around the mud style politics. And obviously, we're not Alinskyites. We're not ever going to truly stoop to that level here. But I mean, wow, they have truly crossed this Rubicon, as we said, time and time again. I just I sincerely hope that our side is up to the challenge. Inez, tell us why you hate America briefly. Um, no, I, I do think there's probably not too much space actually between Josh and my positions only. Uh, I actually come at this from, strangely, it, it's not out of an abstract allegiance to limited government um, or, or to, to principle. Um, it's, I, would make, I would make it the, the analogy to, for example, the anti-CRT bills that passed uh, in, in the last year and a half. Um, I'm all in favor of those things, just like I'm all in favor of, of hearings, of prosecution um, to the fullest extent of the law, of the people who were involved in this um, to the extent that they broke the law. But I, I, these forces are institutionalized. That, that is the deep problem here. You cannot just prosecute a few people. You cannot just, we, we need fundamentally actually the repolitization, capital P, to reintroduce politics into these these agencies because what what we're seeing is the end state and the failure of of exactly the idea that josh is pointing to um, with some derision this wilsonian idea of apolitical governance right there is nothing more political than the way our unelected masters are governing us the only difference is we the people have absolutely no way to hold them accountable and i don't believe that playing whack-a-mole with, a, with these, these folks is really, it may be necessary to make some examples, but what's, what's even more necessary is to actually bring in political control over these agencies. 
And to really clean house, you need to be able to fire not just people. Schedule F only covers about 50,000 people out of 2.8 million. So what is really, really needed is this thing that sounds very wonky and, and unimportant, but is, is the ability of the elected president to actually control the executive branch. And then for the people to be able to hold the president accountable for the actions of his executive branch through the practice of politics and democracy. That's what really needs to happen. Um, you know, <laughs> it's worth noting, by the way, that uh, not only is this what happens in banana republics, people cling to power um, because they know letting go means prosecution and persecution, right? Uh, so this is literally how dictatorships begin and persist. Uh, mm. Part of Caesar's calculus, of course, famously in actually crossing the Rubicon, this metaphor that we are employing over and over again, part of his calculus was to he would lose immunity, right? Um, he would lose immunity if he, if he didn't, uh, if he gave up his position the way that the Senate was demanding that he do, right? That's part of his calculation and saying, I actually have to take this step because my, my political enemies will prosecute me. I'll lose my immunity. Okay, so this is how dictatorships begin. It's how war, civil wars begin. It's how we, we are now on that pathway either towards civil war or to a Caesar and it just got extremely difficult to reverse. And the problem is with the tit for tat thing is that Democrats wield institutional power because the staff of those institutions agree with them already. When Republicans try to do it, even if they weren't as pathetic as most of our Republican party is, it doesn't work the same way. And we saw Trump do that. We saw Trump attempt to, and Trump couldn't control who appointed Christopher Wray, right? Trump was singularly bad actually at confronting his own deep state and his own administrative state. But even if he were better, those people are so protected by our laws now, it is nearly impossible to actually hold them accountable. And that that's why I think the law has to change in a more broad-based way and not just like a, a whack-a-mole thing. And just finally, one, one line, um, on something somewhat unrelated, I, I can't remember who said this, but Ben uh, saying that basically the, the next stage is already happening, right? Um, they're already responding. They're already going after people. I don't know if you guys saw that box piece that essentially lays out, yeah, anybody who is who is noticing that they have broken a 250 year tradition in not, you know, not persecuting political, domestic political enemies, is it, it's that's radical. Noticing that that, that happened uh, yesterday, that's that's the radical and extreme thing that indicates that that quote unquote norms are being broken, not raiding the former president's house, but being angry about it. And that's already the direction that we're going to go. So I, I wholly agree with Ben there. Well, I just want to say I'll be brief. Uh, and as I'm heartened to see that after just a few short weeks, you've come around to my position that the rule of law is dead in this country and that every institution is beyond repair. And and I and let me just say seriously, though. I totally agree that the problems are so deep and widespread that even firing tens of thousands of people who would fight you tooth and nail, the problem is you're talking about, as you said, 2.8 million people, plus their media mouthpieces, plus the academic and scholarly community, plus uh, mass media itself would all close ranks to protect what they have, their rule. And so that gets to a question of what do you do but have your own 100-year plan to take back all of these institutions and, and change the nature and character of the people in the republic, which you know I think we all recognize is part of the lift that has to be done. And maybe because it's so daunting, we haven't really laid out, you know, here would be our plan to counter the long march through the institutions, retaking all of them, uh, and recreating Americans qua Americans as opposed to the kind of occupying regime in effect that exists within all these institutions that, as I argued in this Newsweek piece, 
uh, have not only been turned against their own mandates and missions, but turned on the people who they're supposed to serve. And by the way, you know, ha- we should also note that the legislative branch is wholly at fault here as well. You know, presidents allowed the executive branch to become so big and so powerful that the administrative state was probably more powerful than the executive itself. The show runs the executive, essentially. But of course, it's the legislative branch that allowed the administrative state to be created and to mushroom into what it's become. And I think it's because the legislative branch doesn't want to have any responsibility for actually legislating at the end of the day. And one more point about our pathetic legislative branch is the utter deafening silence from so many of them regarding what happened in Mar-a-Lago. But really, of course, they've, they've had deafening silence on so many of, the, of these matters leading up to this one that it's to be wholly expected. I mean, seriously, and of course, you know, there's obviously you know, self-interest in this, but like when Andrew Yang and, and Cuomo are coming out and saying there are questions about this, yes, they're self-interested, yes, don't really take it seriously, but at the same time, my God, you know, look at where Republicans are versus them. It's it's beyond pathetic. It's contemptible. It's worse than controlled opposition at this point. Josh said something, and, and maybe this is uh, I, I I probably will be briefer than uh, you guys. But Josh said something s- small. He made a passing reference to Kyle Kashev that really stuck with me over the course of the conversation because. What Kyle said is obviously true, and it's basically the focus of this entire conversation that the left has wielded its institutions for political ends in ways the right has not. And Kyle's perspective stands out to me because he's experienced this sort of outside the realm of legislative politics um, in the way that the culture is stacked against anybody with uh, who has an opinion that's sort of outside the elite dogma. And maybe you go about your daily life and you never have to confront national scorn, even if it's brief, even if it's local scorn for a week, for a month. Um, you know, you, maybe you haven't you know, had a bad opinion, a, a bad, I said that with air quotes, a bad opinion um, that gets blown up into a local, state, national, or niche controversy. Um, maybe you don't press the school board on the crazy curricula Maybe you don't, maybe you're just going along to get along. Um, But for so, 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 so many people and for the culture uh, at large, this is very real. The deck is stacked against uh, one sort of set of people um, by people by and large uh, who are elites who cowardly and sometimes intentionally share and cynically share the perspectives of a very small group of the country. Um, And so just sort of refocusing from the horse race politics and and realizing that what we're seeing from the FBI to a billionaire, uh, powerful businessman like Donald Trump, who is despised by the establishment and by the elite class, um, realizing that that's sort of mirrored in different ways, um, but in ways that reflect the experience increasingly of average people um, again, the, those people who I, I say average, not as a pejorative, but as an ambition, <laughs> who are blissfully not in this, this field of media, uh, but are still now experiencing the culture war in very bitter and very real ways. And Kyle's experience um, is just such a good example of how people's lives can now reflect and mirror uh, these, these bigger questions in our politics. So on that note, 
I would like to thank everyone uh, for this wonderful discussion. I would like to say that I, I think we covered uh, all the, the necessary ground, which was no easy feat. Um, but on behalf of Ben, Inez, Josh, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Emily Jashinsky, and we will see you at the next NetCon Squad. <laughs> <laughs>